0: In 1936, the American ambassador in Berlin, William Dodd, wrote to the American president, Franklin Roosevelt. There is, wrote Dodd, quotes, a clique of U.S. industrialists that is hell-bent to bring a fascist state to supplant our democratic government and is working closely with the fascist regimes in Germany and Italy. I have had plenty of opportunity in my post in Berlin to witness how close some of our American ruling families are to the Nazi regime.
1: Well, can Ambassador Dodd possibly have been correct?
0: It's good to see you at the History Café. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow.
1: And I'm John Rosebank, and I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research, and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to, and we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see where we end up. We've been seeing how American businesses invested in Germany in the 1920s and then in the 1930s became locked into Hitler's Third Reich. Well, in some ways you could say they were trapped by the clever economic manipulations of Hitler's banker, Hermann Schacht. But we've also seen that companies like Ford and General Motors and Standard Oil were queuing up, lobbying the Berlin government to let them make money from the Nazis' rearmament programme. The fact is, they took the profits and looked the other way. Now, Ambassador Dodd is suggesting that there was something more to it than that.
0: Dodd's 1936 letter to Roosevelt has been quoted in a number of places, but we haven't been able to track the original down.
1: No, it seems to have gone missing from Dodd's letters to Roosevelt in the FDR presidential library. Charles Hyam in his book Trading with the Enemy misattributes the quote to a news conference aboard a ship in January 1938. What we do know is that FDR encouraged William Dodd to write to him with his personal opinions about events in Germany. And we also know that this quote fits exactly with Dodd's style. He was an academic with a southern rural background who very much distrusted America's business elite.
0: In October 1936, for example, he wrote in very forthright terms warning FDR about the commercial dealings of Standard Oil, International Harvester Company, General Motors and Ford.
1: Well, so was Dodd right that these companies were actually pro-Nazi, or at least a material threat to democracy? First off, you can say that Dodd was an eccentric and difficult character who fell out with many of the people he worked with. We could argue that he was perhaps overthinking the businessman's politics.
0: But we could say that there were plenty of people like Charles Bedeau, the French-American time management tycoon associated with many of these companies that invest in Germany who did commit themselves to the Nazi cause.
1: As we saw last time.
0: Yeah, and another was Sir Henry Detterding. Yeah, he
1: wasn't an American, but he was the Dutch-born manager of the Anglo-Dutch oil giant Shell.
0: The British had awarded Detterding an OBE for supplying oil during the First World War, but his overt Nazi sympathies led to his resignation from Shell in 1936, at which point he divorced his wife and moved to Germany. When he died in 1939, he was given a full Nazi funeral.
1: Not much doubt about Dettings' Nazism then, but these look like exceptions. OK, let's take Henry Ford. Well, we know that he was strongly anti-Semitic. But does that make him a Nazi? The unpleasant truth is that anti-Semitic opinions were all too grimly common in this period in the 1930s. All right, look at John D. Rockefeller. He generously backed research into eugenics, the kind of pseudoscience that claimed that the races were all at war with each other and only the strongest would survive. The Nazis used it to justify killing not only Jews, but also people with disabilities. But then again, you see, eugenics was horribly popular between the wars. The American anthropologist Robert Sussman has even described eugenics as, quote, a dominant scientific paradigm in American academia
0: by the 1920s. Like so many ideas that the Nazis took up and then pushed to awful conclusions, anti-Semitism and eugenics had not been much outside the intellectual mainstream when Hitler took them up.
1: Yeah, people don't like to admit that these days, but it is true.
0: Sympathy for the Nazis was also related to a widespread and unreasoning dread among the rich and politically powerful in America and Britain of anything that might look like Soviet communism. Better than Nazi you knew than the communists, about whom you knew nothing whatsoever, but believed all the scare stories people made up.
1: Yeah, that's something we'll have to come back to. Look, we could say that Ambassador Dodd just got things out of proportion. Most American businessmen did deals with the Nazis, not because they were Nazis themselves, but because, well, they might have been anti-Semitic, they might have been eugenicists, they might have been afraid of communism. But basically, they were making good money out of this, or they believed that they would make rich profits before too long.
0: And Hitler's economics minister, Karl Marx, was brilliantly successful at convincing them to trust him. Schacht persuaded the British and Americans that he was politically moderate and unsympathetic to the Nazis' central philosophies. Indeed, he had, in the early 1920s, been slightly to the left of the political centre. And he would, from 1936, begin to argue that Germany should return to more normal economic relations with the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, and he was then steadily edged out by Hitler. But Schacht was a Nazi in almost everything except having a party card.
0: Which could just have been a useful piece of PR.
1: Yeah, indeed. He cleverly manipulated American and British fears both of fascism and of communism. Trust me, he seemed to be saying, because if you don't, you'll get something or someone much worse. The business community bought it. As we've seen, the Americans eventually and grudgingly came to admit that Schacht had been an old wizard.
0: So were the Americans who invested in Germany only interested in the money, besides being scared of communism? Well, let's put another point of view. One of the chilling threads in this whole story is that American businessmen believed not so much in undemocratic fascism as that they were a Above democratic politics altogether. The historian Richard Overy has commented that nowadays Western firms don't stop doing business with morally repugnant governments like China or...
1: For example, Russia or Saudi Arabia. Yeah, they carry on with them.
0: So we shouldn't be surprised, should we, that American firms worked for the Nazis, creating the military machine that launched World War II. He's right. There's a long... Disgraceful and continuing tradition of businesses and their political friends propping tyrants up for the money.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, uh, Margaret Thatcher? Uh, Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Reagan. Yeah, just look at who they spent their time with. Uh, apartheid South Africa, Pinochet in Chile, General Mohammed Zia al-Haq in Pakistan. Oh, yeah, Saddam Hussein, Cambodia's murderous Khmer, Khmer Rouge. Rouge. Yeah, the list goes on and on. Then, of course, there's Trump and Putin and, oh, you know. But, you know, we should think a bit more about this. As historians like Adam Tooze have argued, after the First World War, politicians' decisions had economic implications they'd never had to consider before. But the other side of that idea is the way in which finance and businesses discover that they had political clout that they, that they never had, never had, had before. before. Hmm? Yeah. So you had a breed of businessmen appearing who began to
0: believe that it was they who now ran the world and not the elected politicians. Take December 1922, for example. The Germans were clearly failing to pay their reparations. Well, there was the
1: repayments for damage done during the war.
0: And it was becoming regular and obvious that they weren't going to pay. As was their right under the reparations agreement. On 11th of January 1923, the French occupied the German industrial area in the Ruhr Valley theory was that if the Germans wouldn't pay, the French could extract the value of the reparations that they were owed from the German coal mines.
1: And from the other industries there. So who should now begin a feverish round of talks to end the crisis? Well, three guesses. The New York lawyer Foster Dulles. Foster Dulles, who we've met so often before, enmeshed with all these American companies we've been looking at. Well, Foster Dulles now began his own private round of negotiations between the French, the German and the Belgian governments, pulling on all the contacts he'd made during the peace negotiations at the end of the war. As if he, a New York lawyer, could somehow sort the European crisis out while the governments couldn't. Dulles went around lecturing the leaders and cabinet ministers of the three countries that their intransigence threatened what he called disintegration and, quote, political problems which would disturb
0: all Europe for years. He went round touting his own solution, a tax on German beer, wine and tobacco. That, he told anyone who would listen, would pay the reparations. And then he went on to try to persuade everyone that the reparations payments should in fact not go to France or Britain as had been agreed, but would be much better used to sort Germany out. Then, eventually, the Germans would be able to pay the reparations as planned.
1: Well, after a week of being completely ignored, Dulles sailed for the States, telling his wife that it had all been, quote, interesting, but not financially profitable. Well, of course, nothing else mattered to a man like John Foster Dulles than being financially profitable. But that's not the end of the story. In 1924, with French troops still in the Ruhr, Dulles had the perfect opportunity to make his plan profitable after all. He was, as you may recall from our second discussion in this series, brought into what was called the Dawes Commission to reschedule German reparations that year, 1924. And the Dawes Commission readily accepted Dulles' idea of ploughing the money back into Germany. Of course they would. As we've seen, Charles Dawes was a Chicago banker. And the 1924 plan named after him was intended to give Germany enough financial credit
0: for it to take out massive new private American loans. Yeah,
1: which you may recall... Organised
0: by Dulles. (laughs) probably
1: negotiated by Foster Dulles. Over a billion dollars worth of them. So, profitable after all.
0: In a similar vein, much later, in April 1936, Alfred Sloan, CEO of General Motors, declared in his quarterly report that, quotes. Industry must assume the role of enlightened industrial statesmanship. It can no longer confine its responsibilities to the mere physical production and distribution of goods and services. It must aggressively move forward and attune its thinking and its policies toward advancing the interests of the community at large, from which it receives a most valuable franchise.
1: Yes. Yeah, so advancing the interests of the community meant, as far as Sloan was concerned, making trucks for the German military so that they could invade the rest of Europe. Mm. Actually, Sloane had been among those who'd funded what was called the American Liberty League. Others included J.P. Morgan, the banker, Pierre de Pond, who was involved with General Motors? J.J. Raskorb, who was a uh, General Motors and Chrysler financial chief. And builder of the Empire State Building. <laughs> builder of the Empire State Building, yeah. George Moffat of Corn Products Refining Corporation, the man you remember about whom it was said uh, Mr. Moffat prefers the tangible, explicit Nazi interference to the half defined meddling of democracy. While all these guys uh, put their money together for the American Liberty League back in 1934.
0: There have been some wild, and so far as any historians discovered, unsubstantiated claims about this group.
1: Specifically, that was planning a military coup against the American government.
0: It was, in fact, supposed to be a business lobby above partisan politics. In practice, it attempted to sway Americans to vote against Roosevelt. Doesn't sound quite above partisan politics. They believed that his New Deal would interfere in their businesses.
1: Which, of course, it did. In the interests of the 99% of Americans who were not among the Liberty League... Millionaires. Millionaires.
0: Anyway, the Liberty League collapsed after the 1936 presidential election, having been denounced by both Democrats and Republicans as unwarranted interference. So much for being above party politics. Roosevelt was re-elected with a huge landslide. On the 19th of April
1: 1938, the man in charge of General Motors in Europe, one James Mooney, met with representatives of the Reichsbank and of Hermann Goering. Mooney discussed with them the possibility of an enormous American loan. This is April 1938. An enormous American loan up to $1 billion to keep the Nazi regime afloat. And Sorry. of course, it, and of course <laughs> in fact, to pay for its rearmament and launching of war. Mm.
0: Amazing. Mooney then travelled on General Motors expenses to London to consult representatives of J.P. Morgan's bank. He also tried to fix a meeting between the Reichsbank and Joe Kennedy, a well-known not to say notorious, businessman and former associate of J.J. Raskob. And,
1: of course, father of the future president, J.F. Kennedy.
0: Yeah, who was now the US ambassador in London.
1: Well, shuttling backwards and forwards on chartered planes between London, Paris, Brussels and Berlin, Mooney apparently believed that he could persuade the Nazi government to sign a far-reaching agreement, a limit to rearmament, a non-aggression pact and, of course, above all, free trade. There would be no Second World War. And it would all be thanks, not to the governments, but to General Motors.
0: The American businessmen who propped up the Nazi Third Reich were not necessarily Nazis, but many did seem to believe that they were way above politics. Negotiating war or peace was not up to the politicians or the people. It was up to them, the businessmen.
1: So in the spring of 1938, James Mooney, General Motors head in Europe, embarked on what he called his odyssey, shuttling backwards and forwards across Europe and the Channel, negotiating what he believed was an international cash for peace deal to get Hitler to sign a non-aggression agreement. The American ambassador in London, one Joe Kennedy himself, a well-known, perhaps we should say infamous businessman, was part of the plan.
0: Far from trying to organise his peace mission through normal diplomatic channels, James Mooney tried to persuade Joe Kennedy to keep the plan secret from the White House. After some hesitation, Kennedy decided to cable the White House to request official permission to travel to Paris to meet the Germans. President Roosevelt turned him down, so Mooney arranged instead for the Germans to come to London undercover. They met Kennedy... Still without White House approval, on the 9th of May at the Barclay Hotel between fashionable Knightsbridge and the equally expensive Belgravia. The plan was only scuppered when the press somehow found out and Roosevelt firmly stepped in to ban any more discussions.
1: In fact, Roosevelt then called Mooney into the White House in September of 1938 and seems to have decided to play on his vanity to probe the Germans a bit further. In March 1940, Mooney flew back to Berlin and this time met Goering and Hitler himself. By June, Mooney was back in New York, having achieved nothing. I'm not sure Mooney cared. By that time, by the time Mooney was back in New York, Hitler was strutting around Paris, having defeated the French. On the 26th of June 1940, that's three days after Hitler's visit to Paris, at the fashionable and expensive Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, James Mooney met with Sosanis Ben, the boss of ITT, and with Gerhard Vestrick, who was Foster Dulles' partner in Germany. They met for a dinner to celebrate the Nazi victory in France.
0: Say that again.
1: <laughs> they met for a dinner to celebrate the Nazi victory in France.
0: Three weeks after that, the German embassy in New York was cabling Berlin that a group of businessmen headed by Mooney and Henry Ford had come up with a plan to put pressure on President Roosevelt to stop supplying arms to Britain. To Britain, not to Germany, but to Britain. And to appoint new American ambassadors, both in Berlin and London. Meanwhile, Gerhard Westrich, Dulles' German partner, was travelling around the States in a Texaco company car trying to raise support for the Nazis. In February and March 1941, the FBI was reporting that Mooney was still trying to contact the German government to broker some kind of deal.
1: Well, we might just write all these episodes off as harmless fantasies, the delusions of self-promoting crackpot businessmen. Even governments do sometimes use informal so-called back channels to sound each other out, as we saw in our series on the Cuban missile crisis. But these attempts by businessmen to change the course of international events Tell us something significant about the state of mind that regards trade as the foundation of world affairs. If there's peace, it will be created by trade. If there's prosperity, it will be created by trade. Leave business to run the world and everything will be all right.
0: So it seems that the American ambassador to Berlin, William Dodd, had sensed something important. The businesses that were dealing with the Nazis in the 1930s had a, shall we say, troubling disregard for democracy just as they had a dark indifference to morality. What history repeatedly tells us is that if you leave anything to businesses, the result is always monopoly and division, which can lead to poverty, suffering and war. Yeah, the reason we need government is to protect us from these business people.
1: Anyway, the personal odysseys of men like Dulles and Mooney were just the dripping tip of a very large business iceberg – Lying unseen beneath the surface of international trade and commerce was an enormous interlacing structure of connections between companies in the States, Germany and many other places. It had all grown up since the First World War to get around the various governments' regulations. In other words, this was specifically to put these companies above national borders and politics. It's a practice that's known as cloaking.
0: Historians Gerard Alders and Case Feebus have, for example, unravelled just one small corner of this, to swap metaphors, vast fabric. In 1934, the German shares in the American subsidiary of the German company Bosch were sold to a Dutch bank, Mendelssohn & Co. It was a way to get around Roosevelt's new Security and Exchange Act. Mendelssohn's bank also had ties with other Bosch subsidiaries in Europe and South America, partly through a subsidiary in Switzerland. In 1933, Bosch had set up an Amsterdam company to handle all of this. Originally, though, to get around German exchange controls.
1: But then Hermann Göring ordered German companies to sell off their foreign holdings. It was a way to raise foreign exchange for the German Reich. In fact, he decreed the death penalty for concealing property abroad. But Bosch in a bit of a problem. They therefore supposedly sold all their foreign companies to Mendelssohn's bank. But only on the secret understanding that they in fact remained Bosch property and could be bought back at any time for the purchase price plus a commission.
0: The deal, signed on the 6th and 7th of April 1937, involved 29 companies across the States, Britain, Denmark, Sweden, Norway and the Netherlands. But in August 1939, Mendelssohn's bank went bust, so all the Bosch companies were sold, but on roughly the same terms, secret terms, to Enskilda Bank, which was based in Stockholm, Sweden. Now you see, Enskilda had an operation in the States with, well, you guessed, Foster Dulles, who also happened to be the lawyer for American Bosch.
1: Enskilda also provided finance for the German chemical conglomerate
0: IG Farben. Together, Enskilda and Dulles had been cloaking IG Farben's many foreign subsidiaries since the late 1920s. And that was
1: in order to dodge German taxes. Now, IG Farben's subsidiaries in the
0: States and Britain and France and around the British Empire were in fact supposedly owned by what were basically fake companies in the Netherlands.
1: <laughs> and they were financed from, from
0: Switzerland and Sweden. <laughs>
1: Oh, nobody needs to remember all this stuff. But let's throw in that IG Farben had a 15% share in Ford, Germany.
0: And General Motors, unable to export its profits from Hitler's Reich, invested them instead inside Germany in IG Farben. Yeah, in
1: 1940, both Standard Oil and ITT attempted, but failed, in fact, to swap their German
0: assets... ...with IG Farben's American subsidiaries.
1: ITT, by the way, had some kind of relationship with... uh, and Skilda in Stockholm.
0: <laughs> Standard Oil German accounts were somehow managed by IG Farben, which also policed Standard Oil's oil fields in Romania. And of course, IG Farben's American affairs were handled by
1: Foster Dulles. Bingo. And that's before we get to South America. <laughs>
0: After the First World War, wealthy American financial and commercial enterprises, grown rich from selling to keep the war going, spread their tentacles through war-ruined Europe. The result wasn't only the appearance of a whole new species of multinationals, but a kind of hidden republic of business connections and interrelationships, a sort of vast intercontinental web of contacts and financial instruments, that ignored national borders and flouted national regulations.
1: They were simply above politics. In fact, these individuals and companies regarded themselves as above the normal laws and conventions of diplomacy, or indeed decency. War and peace, prosperity and poverty was, they believed, within their gift. And if they could make money by equipping the Third Reich for war, well, morality just didn't come into it. If there's peace, it will be created by trade, they said. If there's prosperity, then it will be created by trade. And of course, wherever there is war, the means of fighting it are created by trade. But somehow that never got mentioned.
0: Well, the British journalist Charles Hyams stumbled into this world when he wrote his bestseller, whose title we've taken for our series, Trading with the Enemy. He thought he'd uncovered an American Nazi money plot. But in reality, what he'd found was the dark underworld of multinational business that had grown up after 1918. Now, the spawning fungus of multinational commerce had infected the world for generations before the First World War, for example, in international mining and banking companies. Individual companies trading across national borders date back, of course, into ancient times. But after 1918, the infection spread as never before and it was centred on the newly, fabulously wealthy United States of America. So this was what
1: enabled the Third Reich to arm itself in the face of world recession and crippling international levels of debt. It was new and complex, and governments in the 1930s had no idea what to do with it.
0: So now we've opened a whole new can of worms. What on earth did the governments, particularly of America and Britain, imagine they were doing? while well-known companies based in their territories were furiously, and often behind the scenes, refinancing and retooling the Third Reich, enabling Hitler to defy Germany's extreme economic weakness and build a terrifying war machine. How could these governments have allowed this to happen?
1: Well, that's the question for next time at the History Café. There are nearly a 100 podcasts at the History Café, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafé.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still
0: want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Café Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing, follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Café Pod. And ask your friends to join us too. Oh, 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 oh,